Had David concluded his career by building what would inevitably have been seen as a monument to his might, had Israel's greatest warrior then become renowned for constructing a temple, then the Israelites might have been tempted to see David's lifetime endeavors of war and bloodshed as ideals, events to glorify and celebrate. David's dream was denied out of tragic necessity, lest Judea become Rome. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 93, David's Dream. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. In his work, The Jewish War, Josephus describes an event to which he was eyewitness, Titus's triumphant return to Rome following the destruction of Jerusalem, a parade into the city that sought to display not only the wealth acquired, but also the viciousness with which the conquered had been treated. Thus, aside from displaying the vessels of the temple, the parade consisted of elaborately designed moving stages, and their portrayals were somewhat different than a modern float. Quote, But nothing in the procession excited so much astonishment as the structure of the moving stages. Indeed, their massiveness afforded ground for alarm and misgivings as to their stability, many of them being three or four stories high, while the magnificence of the fabric was a source at once of delight and amazement. For many were enveloped in tapestries interwoven with gold, and all had a framework of gold and wrought ivory. The war was shown by numerous representations in separate sections, affording a very vivid picture of its episodes. Here was to be seen a prosperous country devastated. There, whole battalions of the enemy slaughtered. Here, a party in flight. There, others led into captivity. Walls of surpassing compass demolished by engines. Strong fortresses overpowered. Cities with well-mannered defenses completely mastered. And an army pouring within the ramparts. An area all deluged with blood. The hands of those incapable of resistance raised in supplication. Temples set on fire. Houses pulled down over their owners' heads and after general desolation and woe, rivers flowing, not over a cultivated land nor supplying drink to man and beast, but across a country still on every side in flames. For two such sufferings were the Jews destined, and they plunged into the war, and the art and magnificent workmanship of those structures now portrayed the incidents to those who had not witnessed them as though they were happening before their eyes." The Oxford historian Martin Goodman, in his excellent book Rome and Jerusalem, further describes how Vespasian and Titus then did everything they could to popularize what they saw as a great achievement. Coins were minted, depicting a bound Judean woman weeping beneath a date palm tree under the words Judea Capta. An arch erected in the Circus Maximus falsely informed all attendants that Titus was effectively the first to conquer Jerusalem. That, quote, with the instruction and advice of his father, he subdued the race of the Jews and destroyed the city of Jerusalem which had either been attacked in vain by all leaders, kings, and peoples before him, or had not been attempted at all, end quote. Over the 15 years following the destruction of Judea, Goodman writes, quote, the center of the city of Rome was remodeled to reflect the victory with triumphal arches dominating the traditional route of all triumphal processions, end quote. One of these arches, the Arch of Titus, depicting the temple's menorah held aloft by triumphant troops, can still be seen today. Then there was the Colosseum, which was built with the money taken from Jerusalem. Thus was Rome transformed into a celebration of war and an advertisement of Vespasian's and Titus's victory. Goodman's book not only tells the tale of the fall of the Jewish revolt, it also focuses on the differences in worldview between these two societies, Rome and the Jews. And it is Goodman's explanation of the Roman approach to war that allows us to understand how different the biblical view actually is And that, in turn, may help us to better comprehend why King David was denied 
his greatest dream. After the conquest of Jerusalem and the bringing of the ark into the vicinity of what was now the capital city, David expresses to Nathan the prophet the dream for which he would most be known. Chapter 7, verse 1. And it came to pass when the king sat in his house, and the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within a curtain. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in thy heart, for the Lord is with thee. David, in other words, wishes to create a home for the ark, for the throne of God. And the request is so natural, so obvious, that the prophet agrees instantly, but God does not. Verse 4, 5, 6, and 12. And it came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, Shalt thou build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in any house since that time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but I have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. And when thy days are fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, who shall issue from thy insides, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will make firm the throne of his kingdom forever. Thus we have a biblical example of a dream deferred. David is informed by the Almighty that not he but his son would ultimately construct the house of God in Jerusalem. And the great question, of course, is why does God refuse David's request? In the book of Samuel, the divine does stress that he had not dwelled in a house up to this point. But it cannot be that the notion of building what will be called the Beit HaMikdash, the temple, is problematic. Because if so, why would God have promised that Solomon, David's son, would ultimately build it? And seeking answers to our questions, we turn to another biblical book, Chronicles, which we will get to in only another 180 or so episodes of Bible 365. Chronicles retells the stories of Samuel and Kings, adding information and episodes not found in the first telling, filling in some of the gaps. And in Chronicles, we see how before his death, David gives the blueprints of the temple to Solomon, charging his son to bring his dream of a temple to fruition. And then David explains why God would not allow him to do the one act that he desired more than any other. This is 1 Chronicles, chapter 22, verse 5. And David said, Solomon, my son, is young and tender, and the house that is to be built for the Lord must be of exceeding magnificence, of fame and of glory throughout all countries. I will therefore now make preparation for it. So David prepared abundantly before his death. Then he called for Solomon his son and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, My son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house unto the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thou hast shed blood abundantly and hast made great wars. Thou shalt not build a house unto my name, because thou hast shed much blood upon the earth in my sight. Behold, a son shall be born to thee, who shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies round about, for his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quietness unto Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I his father. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Now, my son, the Lord be with thee, and prosper thou, and build the house of the Lord thy God, as he hath said of thee. That is what Chronicles tells us. David, then, cannot build a temple, because he is a man of war, whereas Solomon, whose Hebrew name Shlomo, means peace, is the one who will reify David's dream. But this explanation makes the matter, at least at first, even more enigmatic than before. What are we to make of God's invalidation of David? Is not Israel grateful for David's valor? Was it not saved again and again? because of this warrior of Israel? Indeed, the Hebrew Bible never puts forward a pacifist perspective. 
and it recognizes that the existence of evil and of enemies of Israel can require a forceful response. Why, then, is David denied his dream? Here, in answering this, as I noted in an article about David in First Things magazine, we turn again to Martin Goodman's book, Roman Jerusalem, where Goodman notes that Jews, like Romans, recognized the necessity at times of war. But at the same time, Goodman stresses that Jews have always been careful never to idealize the waging of war and avoided the glorifying of military might. Goodman writes, quote, Jews, as much as Romans, viewed war as a natural condition. But unlike Romans, they sometimes expressed a hope that this might change, end quote. Despite all the very violent engagements in the Bible, at the same time, Goodman further writes, quote, the biblical prophets Isaiah, Micah, and Joel all looked forward with longing to a time when there would be no more war at all, end quote. And of course, as Goodman points out, the most famous version of this is found in the eschatological vision of Isaiah, when in the end of days, the nations shall beat their swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. And nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Thus, while the manifestation of military might has its place in the Jewish tradition, this was never the ultimate goal. And this, as I further wrote in First Things, can be seen from Goodman's description of one of the greatest differences between Jews and Romans. As Goodman puts it, this, quote, notion of peace, shalom, and an end to war espoused by Isaiah, end quote, was very different from, quote, the Roman notion of Pax, which constituted little more than a pause to take stock between victorious and glorious campaigns, end quote. What this means is that war is meant to be employed when necessary in order to defend Israel, but it cannot become an end in itself. We can now understand why David was denied his dream. As I suggested in my article, had David concluded his career by building what would inevitably have been seen as a monument to his might, had Israel's greatest warrior then become renowned for constructing a temple, then the Israelites might have been tempted to see David's lifetime endeavors of war and bloodshed as ideals, events to glorify and celebrate. David's dream, in other words, was denied out of tragic necessity, lest Judea become Rome, lest David be seen as Vespasian. David could not build the temple, because then he would endanger his greatest legacy. Had his dream been achieved, then glory might have been ascribed to Israel's great warrior, and as we have seen, David's greatness lies precisely in the fact that he always reminded Israel that ultimately all success is ascribed to God. David accepts God's decree, and he does so with happiness and humility, for God has promised that his kingdom will endure and that his son will make his dream a reality. Verse 18, 28, and 29. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that thou hast brought me thus far? And now, O Lord God, thou art the God. And let thy words come true, as thou hast promised this goodness to thy servant. Therefore, now let it please thee to bless the house of thy servant, that it may continue forever before thee. And though Solomon will be the one to build the physical house of God, nevertheless, Jewish tradition will see the temple as first and foremost the achievement of the man who dreamt of it, David. For before the temple became a physical reality, it was to be found within David's mind and soul. David thus provided an example for the Jewish people of keeping the temple as a reality within oneself before it was built. And therefore, David taught the Jewish people that we can continue to keep the temple within ourselves after the temple was physically destroyed. Thus it was that Rome, which destroyed Jerusalem, 
was built on the celebration of power, and it disappeared when its power was lost. But Judaism endured, and the memory of the temple endured. Chacham Moses Gaster, leader of London's Sephardic community in the early 20th century, once imagined what one of the captured Jews from Judea might have said in Rome after the parade bearing the menorah and the other temple vessels. This is what Gaster hears this Jew say, quote, I felt the fire which they had sought to extinguish was now being kindled in the heart of the whole Jewish nation. The delight once lit by my forefather Judah the Hashmonian in this very menorah which I had upon my shoulders had spread throughout the wide world, had kindled a great fire which consumed all the greatness of this heathen and cruel Rome. The victor brought in his infatuation to make a show of it in his triumph. The very instrument of his destruction and that of his empire, little dreaming that our triumph will outlast his and all his coadjutors. This Colosseum, where we will pay with our life for our faith in him who is the God of our fathers and the God of our descendants for untold generations, who is a God of justice and mercy, this Colosseum will crumble to pieces. The proud palaces and temples will be leveled to the ground. A mere ruin will mark the ancient site. But the light of this, our menorah, will never be extinguished. End quote. Today, ancient Rome is a ruin. But Judaism endures. The memory of the temple is still preserved. And the dream of David still lives. This is Mayor Soloveitchik. Looking forward to learning together tomorrow. Signing off.